If you study biblical numerology, you'll find that the number five is the number of grace. Number five is the number of grace. Whether you talk about the five porches of the pool of Bethesda or whether you talk about the fivefold ministry of the church, the five letters in the name of Jesus, the five wounds in the body of Christ, five is the number of grace. And grace should always be at the forefront of the Christian's mind because our salvation, our redemption, and every blessing that we receive in this life is only because of the grace and the kindness of God. You may not recognize it, but if you're here this morning in this warm sanctuary, you're here by the grace of God. There's a lot of things that could have prevented you from getting here, but you're here by the grace of God. You drove here in the grace of God. You woke up in the grace of God. You're sitting there breathing with your heart beating without you telling it too constantly, and you're doing it by the grace of God. And the grace of God is a gift. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Look at that again. It is by grace you have been saved. Say it with me. It is by grace I have been saved through faith, not of myself, not of my works. It is the gift of God. And Jesus is God's grace personified. Jesus is the natural physical manifestation of the grace of God. And Jesus himself was a gift. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave the gift of his only son. And never make the mistake that thinking what Jesus did was the gift. No, Jesus himself was the gift. It wasn't any of the miracles he performed nor the parables he taught. His very life, his essence was the gift. God wrapped himself up in the wrapping paper of flesh. But the real value was down inside his life, his essence. And the Bible says that the life of the flesh is in our blood. It's in the blood. So the gift was given at his birth, but the value wasn't truly revealed and perceived until he allowed himself to be unwrapped by shedding his blood. Every time he was unwrapped in the scripture, every time his skin was broken and the blood came out, the gift of what he really was and the depth of what he offered to us was revealed. Just like a present, the more you rip it, the more you reveal the gift inside it. The more he shed his blood, the more we could reveal the, the true precious value of what was really inside. Which brings me back to the number five. It amazed me when I was reading this. I had no idea. A lot of times when you think about Jesus shedding his blood, you think about the cross. But I had no idea that in the Bible, Jesus shed his blood on five separate occasions. Five separate occasions he was unwrapped. And each time he shed his blood in the scriptures, 
a different facet, a different revelation of the value of what it offers to us, what the gift really means to us was revealed. I want to take you through briefly the five separate times he shed his blood and what it revealed about the gift. Number one, his circumcision when he was eight days old. His circumcision reveals that he is our covenant keeper. Only by being born under the law of God could he perfectly fulfill it. Galatians 4.4, 4, it says in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And this is very important. The Old Testament, the law that God gave Moses, the covenant that God gave Moses. He said, I want there to be a sign and a seal of this covenant in all its totality in your flesh. So I want you to circumcise all of the males so that they will be bound and sealed to my covenants and my laws. And when they break my covenants and my laws, they'll have to bring a sacrifice. And the circumcision that's in their flesh and in their body will be a constant reminder to them that they are tied to me, to my law, to my covenant. So Jesus Christ was born under the law, and the one that gave the law submitted himself to the law and was circumcised. It was his first sacrificial act for us, and it's important that he was circumcised, and it was important that he completely obeyed the law, because by being born under the law and completely obeying the righteous law of God, it gave him the ability to be justified in forgiving people who broke the law. Because he was born under the law and kept the law, he can redeem and forgive people who have broken and disobeyed God's covenant and God's commandments. So he was circumcised to reveal he is our covenant keeper, that we are righteous before God in him that a guilty person can go to God and not have to go to God in guilt and shame because you can go to God knowing I may not have kept all of the covenant, but Jesus kept it for me. So I'm coming to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. If it was my name, I got a lot of bad things in my reputation and my history, but, but I'm coming in the name of the one who kept the covenant for me. He was circumcised to reveal he is our covenant keeper. That's why you ought to never go to God talking about all the mess and how terrible you are and what a bad person you are. When you sin, receive his forgiveness, repent and receive his grace. But don't go to God beat brow beating yourself talking about how messed up you are. Because when God sees you in the light of Jesus Christ, he sees a covenant keeper. He sees someone who's been obedient. He sees someone that he is proud of. He sees someone that he's glad that approached him. Did you know when you pray, no matter how much of a mess you've been, God is glad to see you approach him because you approach him in the name of the one that is favored, that is accepted, that did keep the covenant. You ought to walk into your prayer closet with your shoulders back and your head held high because Jesus is our covenant keeper. Say he's my covenant keeper. The second time in scripture that he shed his blood was in the garden of Gethsemane. 
revealing that he suffered both inwardly and outwardly for our salvation. In the garden before Jesus Christ's intense physical torture and suffering, in the garden he was praying. And he asked the Father if there was any way that the cup could pass. Knowing what was coming to him, knowing the judgment he would have to receive for all of our sins, it inflicted such intense emotional pain and spiritual turmoil that he prayed so hard that the capillaries and blood vessels in his brow and eyes began to break and blood started coming out of his pores like sweat. Because it cost Jesus every part of his being spirit soul and body to redeem us and to save us the third time he shed his blood in scripture was in the judgment hall revealing that he is the remover of our shame it was in the judgment hall that they tied his hands behind his back and they took turns striking him in the face it was in the judgment hall that they went up to him and they ripped the beard out of his cheeks and out of his chin. Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 50 verse 6 when Jesus said, I have not hid my face from the shame. I've not kept my face back from the beating and from having my beard plucked out. I did some study on this and I found out that the plucking of the beard of a condemned man was a common practice to humiliate and shame a person before their execution. A lot of criminals back in Bible days would get very emboldened and very brash right before their execution, trying to distance themselves from the crime that they had committed. So what they would do is they would rip the hair out of their face. They would rip the beard and tear it by the force of their hands. And they would do this to shame them, telling them, this is why this has happened to you. This is why your face is being uncovered. We're removing the covering from your face so you can stand here and realize this is happening to you because of the crime you committed. It was done to humiliate and mock and shame a criminal right before their execution. And Jesus allowed them to do that to him. Streaming blood down both sides of his cheeks reveal to us he's not just the forgiver of our sins and the redeemer of our soul he's the remover of our shame he was innocent he had committed no crime yet he absorbed the shame why not everybody in here knows what it's like to be shamed publicly for something that you've done wrong but a few people do most of the time when you do something terribly wrong, you can limit the knowledge of it to a select few group of people. But to have to be publicly shamed for what you've done wrong means that you have to pay twice. Not only do you have to pay the consequence for what you did, 
But you also have to pay with your reputation and carry the shame. And people who have been shamed publicly, sometimes it's been 10 years since they did something wrong, but they're still carrying the shame today over something that happened a decade ago. And shame is the way that the enemy and hateful people torment you in your future over something that happened in your past. You know, everybody's got that one family member. You did one bad thing. You threw a rock and broke a window when you was 12 years old. You're 36 at Thanksgiving dinner, and they're talking about the time little Johnny threw the rock and broke the window. Just can't escape it, you know. Shame. But Jesus Christ endured the shame and the humiliation so that you could be set free from shame and humiliation and not have to carry it through your life. And I want to tell every one of you who's got something haunting you from the past, Jesus Christ let blood stream down from the beard that was ripped out of his face. He absorbed the humiliation so you could cancel the humiliation. You are not the things you have done. The things you have done do not define your identity you may have stolen but you're not a thief you may have been promiscuous but you're not a whoremonger there is a difference between your identity and the things you have done and Jesus drew that line of distinction when he allowed himself to absorb our shame if you've got shame in your heart today give it to Jesus if you've got insecurity or a, a complex about something that's happened in the past give it to Jesus he allowed himself to be ripped open so that you could be free from shame everyone lift your hands up in the air and say I renounce shame and I receive my dignity my dignity that Jesus paid for. Now clap your hands and give him praise. Fourth place that he shed his blood in scripture was at the whipping post. At the whipping post, he revealed he is our healer. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5 says, Surely he's borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The stripes on his back reveal that he did not suffer simply to save your eternal soul and get you into heaven, but he suffered so that no physical sickness or ailment could take you out of this world before it is your time to go. He suffered to produce a way, a new and living way for people to be healed from sickness. And I don't know about you, I've been healed so many times.
People in my family have been healed so many times. I'm not talking about something that I think is possible. I'm talking about something that I have seen God do time after time after time. And every time you get healed of something, whether it's cancer or a simple headache, you ought to get somewhere and throw up both your hands and give God praise for the stripes he took on his back. Healing is a hallowed thing. He had to suffer and let the blood come down but can you see him there tied to the whipping post them lacerating his back can you see how the package was being opened how the wrapping paper of his skin was being ripped away so that the value could come out one of those values is by those stripes we are are healed you ought to never tolerate sickness you ought to pray against it till it leaves if you pray on monday and it's still there on tuesday pray all day tuesday because jesus died to produce to give the gift of healing to those that have faith in him and if you're sick in your body right now in the name of jesus christ by the blood of jesus christ we speak healing over you from the top of your head to the sole of your feet if a family member is sick lift up your hands right now in the name of jesus christ we draw on the gift that your blood provided and we claim healing now in jesus name say it like a church say healing now in Jesus name now throw up both your hands lift up your voice and say healing now in Jesus name now give him praise if you receive it finally the fifth place that he shed his blood was on the cross we, we've gone through his circumcision we've gone in the blood he shed there we've gone through Gethsemane and the blood he shed there We've gone through the judgment hall and the blood he shed there, the whipping post and the blood he shed there, and finally on the cross. And on the cross, he revealed that he was our substitution. In total righteous innocence, he died in the place of the guilty. His sacrifice totally satisfied the judgment of God forever, meaning every guilty sinner can be cleansed and forgiven if you'll repent and turn away from yourself and receive the gift that his life offered. He is our substitution. And you can't think of the death of Jesus on the cross as a historical event that you're distant from. The believer knows that while the cross was a global and historical event, that it was also an eternal event, everlasting. Meaning when Jesus died, the believer appropriates the fact that Jesus died for what I did. When I think of the death of Jesus Christ, I'm, forgive me, I'm not thinking about you. When I think of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, it doesn't help my faith to think about you. I don't know what you did. I don't know how crazy you are, how messed up you are. I don't know what's in your past or your future. When I think of the cross of Jesus Christ, I have to apply what I've done. All of my sins, my weaknesses, 
my past, all of the reasons and rights God would have to have judgment and guilt against me. And you must understand, God the Father punished Jesus on Calvary's cross for what you did. For what you're guilty of. For the sin you committed. Somebody say, this is personal. I love the old hymn writer when he said, was it for crimes that I had done? He hung upon the tree. Unending mercy, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. It was for the crimes I had done that he became my substitute. What's that mean? It means in one place and at one time on the cross, Jesus, he absorbed all of the judgment of God for your lifetime of sin. Did you hear me? On the cross, in that moment, Jesus absorbed all of the judgment of God for your lifetime of sin. Somebody said the other day, uh, somebody that we know lives in California, and the fire destroyed their home and they're friends of ours, and we were talking. And somebody said, y'all need to pray for California. It's the judgment of God here. And I, I stopped right there, and I was sympathetic to what they were going through, but I said, no, that was a fire. The judgment of God, according to the Scripture, was poured out on Jesus Christ. When something bad happens in your life and some religious fuddy-duddy looks at you and says, oh, that's the judgment of God. Your car got repoed. It's the judgment of God. You lost your job. It's the judgment of God. All, let this preacher put a no in your spirit. No. Something bad happens to a family member. Somebody gets in a car wreck. Something bad happens and people have the nerve to say that's the judgment of God. No. Because a car wreck would never be enough to pay for a lifetime of sin and degradation and and failure and dishonoring the law of God only the blood of Jesus was righteous and pure enough to satisfy the legalities of the justice of God and when God judged Jesus he judged you because Jesus died in your place as your substitute somebody says this the Something happens here in this life, and you say, yeah, it's the judgment of God. No, it's life. And life can be hard, and life can be brutal. But as a Christian, you always have at least one reason to rejoice. Because while life may be filled with trials, when it comes to judgment day, the only hope you're going to have is not, God, I lost my car, and God, I lost my job, and isn't that payment enough? No. The only hope you will have is that Jesus Christ's blood was shed in your place to receive the full payload of the judgment of God so that a guilty you can approach a righteous God with boldness and confidence knowing that Jesus paid it all. I just want, I can't move off that, off that point. I got to tell somebody, he paid it all. 
you don't have to suffer and pay for it because if you're suffering paid for it he would have not needed to go to the cross Jesus paid it all God is not angry with you God's not trying to get you God's not repaying you for something you did when you were 16 years old God's not repaying you for that abortion you had when you were 15 God's not repaying you for that lie you told or that wrong that you did God's not getting you back in your life later because of what you did earlier Jesus paid it all can you can you see it unwrapping the more he was torn they first started tearing him at his circumcision he bled first then and every time through scripture that he was torn more of the wrapping paper was being removed and you could finally see the gift of grace he was grace unwrapped five times he shed his blood and then I studied it and it amazed me. Five times he shed his blood. And on the cross he shed his blood out of five wounds. Head, hands, feet, back, side. Five different times in scripture he shed his blood. On the cross he bled out of five places. Head, hands, back, feet, side. I'll draw your attention to the crown of thorns that they twisted upon his head. <coughs> I often think that in the story of the crucifixion that the thorns are left untouched. But thorns, if you're studying, side note, if you're studying anything in the Bible and you're going to study it as a topic, you've got to go to the first time it's mentioned in Scripture to find out the depth of its meaning. This is a theological principle called the law of first mention. Because the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, wrote the Bible through the hands of inspired men. So God ordered everything according to his perfect order, and God is very detailed. So God has made it so that in the book of Genesis, the root system of the Bible... Every major core doctrine or subject is in Genesis in some way or form, in some root or another. And so the first time thorns are mentioned in the scriptures in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have fallen, they have sinned, they disobeyed God. They took that which God said not to take and they ate it and they took it unto themselves. And so God cursed the serpent, God cursed the woman, and then God cursed the man. But he didn't stop there. God even cursed the ground. Look at that. Cursed is the ground. Now, the ground for Adam and Eve was their producer. They would sow into the ground seed, and the ground would yield back whatever they wanted. But because of the fall of mankind and because man had dominion over the earth, not only was man cursed by sin, but the ground was cursed. Their ability to prosper and have prosperity was cursed. And God said, thorns, thorns are going to come out of the ground. Go to verse 18. Go to verse 18. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. In other words, every time you plant 
just know no matter how good the seed is, when it comes time to harvest what you planted, the harvest is always going to come with thorns. Care how hard you work and how much money you earn, the earnings always going to come with thorns. Something that hurts, something that, that taxes you, something that, you know, your refrigerator goes out and you weren't expecting it, or your dryer goes out and you weren't expecting it, or you got to make a, a replacement on your vehicle that you weren't expecting. And just something that always comes, you get a big fat paycheck in your hand and you're smiling, and then you get a phone call from your spouse talking about there's a hole in the roof and rain's pouring in. And every, it's not that you're not getting anything, but there's, there's thorns attached to it and thorns are a reminder that the earth is cursed because of sin and disobedience anybody know what it's like to have a few thorns in your life have a few thorns going on but they messed up bad when they took those thorns made them into a crown and twisted it on Jesus head because when they did he started bleeding on the thorns he covered the thorns, which was the curse, with his blood, which was the redeeming qualitative power of God. Meaning, the thorns are a sign to us. Not only did his blood purchase our salvation, not only did his blood purchase our redemption, but his blood also purchased the ability for us to be blessed and prosper because of him. The blood of Jesus doesn't just mean I'm saved. The blood of Jesus doesn't just mean I'm healed. The blood of Jesus means I am blessed also. Somebody say, I am blessed. As a blood-bought believer, if you learned anything, you know you can plead the blood over your children, and you ought to. You can plead the blood over your health, and you ought to. When somebody's sick, you can plead the blood, and you ought to for healing. But you can also take your wallet or your purse out right now, lay your hands on it in faith, and say, In the name of Jesus Christ, my finances shall be blessed. No thorns shall be prevalent in my life. I'm blessed by the blood. I'm prosperous by the blood. I am promotable by the blood. I am elevated by the blood. Poverty has no right in my life. Poverty has no right in my family because of the blood of Jesus. Poverty is a curse. Idiots try to convince you that, that poverty was Jesus' way and Jesus' path. And that is the furthest thing in the world from the truth. The Bible says to owe no man anything but to love him. So debt is a curse. Lack is a curse. High interest credit cards are a curse. Paycheck loans are a curse. It's all a part of the thorns that are down in the system of this cursed world. But you as a believer have a right to add up all of your bills on the table and say, Father, in the name of Jesus, because of the fact that your blood ran red on those thorns, I receive strategies to get debt free. I receive the ability to get promotion and earn more money. I receive the ability to receive inheritance. I receive the ability to have power and pay this stuff off. I receive the ability to pay this house note. I receive the ability to become a landowner. I receive the ability to make wise financial decisions. I receive the ability for the curse of the thorns to be broken in my life. I don't know who it's for. 
God wants the curse of the thorns to be broken in your life and he shed his blood out of his hand over those thorns to let you know your resources can be covered by the blood of Jesus too. I want to give him praise right there. Not everybody has the faith to say it. But if you do, God will give this to you. In 2019, I will be debt free. I want you to think of all your credit card debt, student loans, everything having a high interest thing attached to it and say in the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, I rebuke debt and I receive prosperity. Lay your hands on your head and say, give me the strategy. Give me the strategy. Show me the books to read, the people to talk to. Show me the places to go and the places to find it. But God, if you could pay the taxes for the disciples out of a fish's mouth, I know you can provide all of my needs according to your riches and glory. I will be debt free in the name of Jesus. Oh, that's a praise moment right there. I'm talking, somebody's faith is jumping. It may not be everybody. It may be one person in each section. But that's on hold of this. God wants to get you out of debt, out of the interest, out of the high payments, out of it. Pastor, you don't know how deep in debt I'm in. I bet you you were deeper in sin than you are in debt. And his blood got you out of that. If his blood was powerful enough, let me ask you, to get you out of all the sin you was in and wipe your sin slate clean, then how much more powerful is his blood when it's applied to your finances, able to wipe the debt off of you, able to wash the debt off of you, able to wash the lack off of you, able to wash the poverty off of you, able to wash that mentality off of you. A thorn's work is, it's sharp on the outside so that it can puncture and go deep on the inside. It starts externally and works its way internally till it sticks. That's what poverty is. That's the curse of poverty. Poverty is not the amount of money you have in your bank account. Poverty is your mindset towards finances. A multi-billionaire wrote a book and said, it's not what you make, it's what you manage. That if you had a mind towards it differently, that if your paradigm toward it would shift, that all of a sudden it wouldn't be what's coming in that's the problem. Poverty is a curse of thinking about money and resources. It's a way of behaving. It's a thorn. And Jesus bled all over them.
Pastor, I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus, and, and I'm not blessed like that. Maybe you hadn't heard that before about the blood covering the thorns and about the thorns being the curse of poverty and lack. But you heard it now. Now you can have faith for it. Now you can pray for it. Jesus said you have not because you ask not. Now you can get up Monday morning, go get in your prayer chamber and say, Father, in the name of Jesus, with the faith that I got because that preacher put it in my spirit, I ask you to give me the mindset, give me the strategy, give me the earning ability, anoint my hands, and let me be debt free by the blood of of Jesus. Everybody take out your hands and look at them. Let's claim that psalm, that promise over our hands. The work of my hands shall be blessed. Oh, the work of my hands shall be prosperous. Now everybody that works with your hands, give God a hand praise and receive blessing. 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 Oh, I feel that blessing. Blessing. Oh, I feel that blessing. Oh, hallelujah, blessing in my hands. Give five people a high five and say, your hands are blessed. Your hands are blessed. Come on, get up out of your seat. High five five people. Say, your hands are blessed. Then give God praise in the house. businesses start growing like wildfire people will start soliciting you to help them with their dreams and their purposes and their businesses doors will fling wide open when you understand that the blood wasn't just about removing shame it wasn't just about healing it wasn't just about forgiving your sins but he also bled on the thorns so that you could be blessed Blessing starts in your mind. Then it flows through your confession. The first, the first thing you can do if you want to tell if a person's blessed is check their confession. Stop. Oh, in 2019, you need to make some resolutions. Stop talking down about yourself. Oh, gee, let me stomp on this thing. I, I'm trying to teach and I feel the apostle coming. Stop saying things like we can't afford it. Well, try this side. Stop saying things like, we don't have the money. My Bible says my father owns the cattle 
on a thousand hills. It says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell within. God said in Haggai, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, and the glory of the latter house shall be greater than the glory of the former house. I'm telling you, God is blessed and he bled so that you could be blessed. me preach you into it grab on this by faith don't make me hype you up into it grab on this by faith God wants you to be blessed you ever had you ever had this little kid one box but it had a lot of different components of toys in it The blessing's part of the gift. The change in your mindset towards how you manage and how you speak and what you declare and what you say. Nobody wants to hire somebody that's always talking down. Positive people and people that do high finance and are, and are, and are blessed really moving currency in the earth. They have a common trait. They're positive. There's enough negative things to get focused on in the world. You got to be special to put your focus on the positive. Stop talking low. Stop thinking low. Have the faith to believe God for more. So much to say. Verse 21 of our context, Luke chapter 2. On the eighth day when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. Look at that. On the eighth day when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. On the eighth day when it was time to circumcise the child, that's when he was named Jesus. They knew his name because the angel had given it before he was ever conceived, but he was not formally given his name until after he bled. After he bled for the first time at circumcision, then he was called Jesus. Why? Because the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. But God wouldn't allow him to be called Jehovah is salvation until the blood was shed at circumcision. This would forever tie his name and his blood together that salvation is in his name by his blood whoever so call on the name of the lord shall be saved why because he shed his blood he can't be called salvation if there is no blood so on the eighth day when it was time to circumcise that's when he was named jesus verse 22 when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of moses Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. This, I'll underscore this again. I already mentioned it. They were very careful and led by the Spirit of God to completely follow the dictates of the law of Moses as it pertained to Jesus. Not every family did this. Not every Jewish family did this. They were supposed to. But they didn't follow the exact tenets of the law. But Mary and Joseph did. Because they cared about it. 
It mattered to them. It mattered to them because God made it matter to them because Jesus had to keep the whole law. Every jot and tittle of it. He had to keep the whole law so that he would be justified in looking at all of us lawbreakers and say, I call you righteous. My righteousness is yours. Then verse 24, it says, they were to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of Moses, or the law of the Lord, which was the law that he gave Moses, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, this is sad to me. In the Old Testament law, and it's sad to me because of the situation. I'll get to the situation in a minute. In the Old Testament law, God always taught proportionate giving. Everybody say proportionate giving. You understand their currency and their, their trade, their money back then, a lot of times included animals and livestock and that sort of thing. And so if you were a wealthy person and you wanted to consecrate your child and have them circumcised, dedicated, blessed, given to the Lord at, at their dedication, you had to bring a sacrifice with you. For wealthy people, it was a bull, a bullock. If you were middle class, you could bring a lamb or a goat. But if you were poor, you could bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. Well, Mary and Joseph were poor people at this time. Jesus only eight days old, and the wise men didn't come to bring the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh until well after he was a year old. So Joseph and Mary, they didn't have a lot of money to begin with. And you'll remember why they're in Bethlehem. They had to travel to Bethlehem to pay a tax. So they already don't have a lot of money. They got to go and pay a tax. They just had a baby. And now they're coming to the temple and they're scraping together their money so they can go purchase two turtle doves and go in because they cared about giving God what his word asked for. They didn't look at their situation and say, we can't afford it or we can't do it. No, that's a poverty mindset. They said, what does the word say? To hell with what my situation says. What does the word say? And the word said, if you fall into this category, two turtle doves. So you see them, they, they got baby Jesus and they're scraping everything together. They go to the place where the animals are sold and they purchase the turtle doves and they walk into the temple. To give God the offering that he asked for. And they were giving out of intense need. But what they didn't know while they were giving an offering out of their need. Is that you cannot outgive God. And while they were giving what was a sacrifice to them. God was speaking to wise men in the east saying go load down your camels with gold and with frankincense and with myrrh now listen to this we often say and think in tradition there were three wise men that's hogwash the bible never says there were three it says they brought three separate types of gifts the commentators say it was a caravan of wise men and on each camel they had loads of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. Can you see these two young adults standing in the temple with a couple of pennies to rub together having given sacrificially of all that they had and it wasn't a lot but God doesn't just honor the large sacrifices of bulls or the medium sacrifices of sheep and goats. He even honors the small sacrifices given 
out of intense need. And I want to tell you, when you give your sacrifice to God, even out of your need, God will always provide supernaturally for your needs. While they were giving hundreds of miles away, a caravan was coming that they knew nothing about. And I want to tell everybody that's been giving in this season out of your need, God's got a caravan for you that you don't know anything about. He sent me here and he said, tell them I've seen their seed and I've seen their sacrifices and I've seen their labor and their work so they could come into my presence and bless my house. I've seen what they've done for people in need. I've seen how they've helped and blessed their community and a caravan is on its way to you. In 2019, a caravan of blessing. Blessing in different forms and in different ways, but blessing all the same is on its way to your life. And then the last part that I want to share with you in the text and I'm done is when they walk into the temple, they give their sacrifice. A oh, caravan is coming. A caravan is coming. Somebody in this section, it's the right time to launch out and do what you've been planning to do. It's the right time to launch that business. It's the right time to invest. It's the right time to sell that property. It's the right time to buy that property. A caravan, a caravan is, I don't know who you are. A caravan is coming. A caravan of blessing, unexpected from the Lord. Not the man's doing, not people's doing, but a blessing from the Lord. Somebody shout, a caravan is coming. I feel that. I feel that. I feel that. I feel caravan. I don't know if you're military or, or what it is in here, but the Bible says that a hit was put out on Jesus by Herod and that Mary and Joseph had to relocate. They didn't want to relocate. They were forcefully relocated. And somebody's just got news that you're going to have to forcefully relocate and you're worried about the finances. Whoever you are, God sent me here today to tell you that the caravan is coming and it will totally pay for the move. It will totally pay for the move. Hit me up on Facebook and let me know if that was you. So they... So they give their offering, right? And uh, while they're giving it, this old codger, he comes up to them. His name's Simeon. And Simeon's just been in the temple every day, praying and seeking God's face. And one day in prayer, God gave old Simeon a promise. Said, Simeon, I ain't going to let you die until you see the face of the Messiah. And when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus in and they gave their offering and circumcised him and they formally called him Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation, Simeon's ears perked up and he ran over to the baby and he picked him up in his arms and he started crying and he said, now, now I can die because God, you've kept your promise. You let me see the face of the one that will save us all. And at the same time as Simeon's crying and singing praises over the baby, Anna comes up. Now the Bible says that Anna was a prophet. Let me parenthetically insert for all you crazy religious people not in here watching online. That think that women cannot be preachers and prophets. 
There was also, if you can't see me, I'm reading the Bible. You know, the one that's got the dust on it on your coffee table. There was also a prophet, Anna. Well, it could have been a man named Anna. Keep reading. The daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. Ladies, it's your time to prophesy. Open your mouth. Let God use you. Let him give you a ministry. Let him call you to pray. Let him fill your belly with a word that will change the nation. Let God use his daughters. She was very... Oh, I feel it. She was... Hey, I feel it. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after they got married. Then he died. And she remained a pure widow. Until she was 84 years old. And she chose to give her life and her time to her God. She said, my husband's dead. So until I die, I'm going to serve the Lord. So she never, (laughs) she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And when she she hears Simeon, that old man over there crying, singing and rejoicing, she stumbles over engages her prophetic ability and she begins to prophesy over Jesus and the Bible says and I love love this the Bible says that Mary and Joseph marveled at what Anna and Simeon had said a couple things about that it makes me love Mary and Joseph because if you remember Mary and Joseph got a visitation from an angel I mean not not just you know in an ethereal sense in real life an angel appeared to them and gave them a message and they marveled at that how many know it's hard to marvel at someone natural coming up to you and giving you a prophecy after you've had an angel come up to you and give you a prophecy but I look in the text and And I see a circle. (laughs) I see a circle. I see the baby Jesus. He's eight days old. I see a couple, his parents, young adults. Then I see two people in Anna and Simeon that are old enough to be grandparents or great-grandparents. I see the very young, the middle, and the very old. And I see them ministering to each other. Jesus was ministering just by his presence. Simeon took one look at his face and said, I can die now. That's the baby ministering to the elderly. But then it didn't stop. Simeon picked him up and began to prophesy all over him. That's the elderly ministering to the baby. Mary and Joseph stood back and marveled or received what was said. 
And when you speak something to somebody that is prophetic and they receive it, you've ministered by speaking, but they've ministered back to you by receiving what you've said. Ooh, that's rich. When you cook somebody a meal in your home and you have them over to your house, you've ministered to them by preparing the meal, but they minister to you by saying, man, that's good. Mutual and reciprocal from the very young to the very old because he's a multi-generational God. <laughs> Speaking of first mention, I found this interesting. The first time Jesus came into the church, the first time Jesus came into the temple, there was young, middle, and old all present because the church centered around Jesus ought to have some babies in it, ought to have some teenagers in it, some young adults in it, some middle-aged people in it, and some elderly gray hair in it because he is a generational God, and it's through the different generations that we can see the greatest and fullest picture of his grace. And then verse 40, I want to read it to you and read it over you as you stand. Verse 40 said, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. And the Lord gave me those words to speak over you. I, I'm just going to take the child out of it because Jesus is no longer just on the pages of scripture. He's living in your heart. So I want you to replace that with your name. For instance, you would say, I'm saying it for me, but you would say your name. I would say Jason grew, became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Well, just put your name there. And Jason grew, became strong. He or she, whoever you are, was filled with wisdom and the grace of God. Lift up your hands. Say it again. I will grow. I will become strong. I'll be filled with wisdom and the grace of God will be all over me. Lift up your hands to heaven and pray with me. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Through your word, you have been openly portrayed to my understanding. Today, I confess you as my Lord and Savior. I repent of my sins. I renounce my wrong. I ask you to cover me with your blood and accept me into the gift of your righteousness. And by your word, by your promise, I receive that gift, the gift of salvation, the gift of healing, the gift of blessing, the removal of curses from every part of my life in Jesus name give the Lord a praise right where you are